The sermon text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, through chapter 7, verse 14. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? And who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud of spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Have you ever thought about the benefits of suffering? Uh, Maybe you've seen that reality in your own life as you have passed through some ordeal of some kind and then you come out on the other side and you find these surprising benefits that have come through it. Some people call it post-traumatic growth. Uh, It's often from the the stress or the pressure of uh, the difficulties of life that the diamonds of wisdom and virtue emerge. Uh, but suffering doesn't in- inevitably bring um, these benefits. You know, suffering often makes people uh, bitter, uh, resentful, e- even despairing, which reminds us that suffering is not inherently good, uh, but the decisive factor is how we encounter suffering. Uh, it's not just uh, that suffering leads to wisdom, Uh, but it's rightly endured suffering which leads to wisdom. And rightly enduring suffering, uh, that's the skill that Solomon wants to teach us in this passage. So Solomon had been discussing enjoying God in the day of wealth and prosperity in the bulk of chapters 5 and 6. And now here at the end of chapter 6 and on into chapter 7, he begins uh, discussing how we enjoy God even in the day of adversity. And the point he's driving us towards is this, that in the day of adversity, we should meditate not on the adversity itself so much as we meditate on the sovereignty of God in it. 
So this bit of wisdom unfolds through three distinct sections in the text. First, a prologue on sovereignty at the end of chapter 6, followed by a, a poem of paradox in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and then finally a conclusion in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 to consider the work of God. So the first brief section in uh, 6, 10 through 12 begins in verse 10, whatever has come to pass has already been named. Whatever has come to pass has already been named. Now, in the Old Testament, when God names a person or a thing, he exercises authority over it. He's appointing it for a specific task, for a specific purpose. And that reality applies to everything that comes about in our lives. God has named the events of your life. Whatever has already come to be, whatever will come to be, God has named the events of your life. Whatever has come to be has already been named by God for you. Well, this is simply what is taught all over the Bible. The very first words of the Bible tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he brought the universe into existence. And of course, then everything that happens in the universe happens not only under his gaze, uh, but also under his control. R.C. Sproul said, there are no maverick molecules. Uh, Right down to the cellular and molecular level, God exercises his authority. The Westminster Confession says, God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever has come to pass. Well, that's the doctrine that Ecclesiastes 6.10 is teaching us, framing it here as God's naming of the events of our lives. Uh, There's a certain intimacy to that, isn't there? Uh, Parents name their children. God named Adam and Eve. We name our children. Uh, You don't go around naming other people's children. Uh, God has named the events of your life. There's a paternal kind of familiarity and intimacy that he has with the events of your life. He's called them to come forward, so to speak, specifically for you. That may be comforting to you to think that God has named the events of your life. That in unfolding the events of your life, God is exercising a, a, lovingly, a, a loving, fatherly kind of care over you. Uh, for others, that may actually feel discomforting. Um, as God has uh, named the events of your life, does that apply to the hard things as well? You know, that's more of a discomforting thought. Has God appointed even the cancer, uh, the job you hate, the job you lost, the loved one that you've lost, Has he appointed these things or other difficulties for you? Has God named these things too? You know, we we hesitate to pin such things on God. Um, But where do they come from? Well, there are two errors we want to avoid in answering that question. The first error would be to think that God doesn't stand behind evil in any way at all, as if evil has popped up as an unexpected threat to God's sovereignty that he doesn't have control over. That's philosophically called dualism. That would be an error. The other error would be to think that God stands behind evil and good in exactly the same way, that just as he sends good in our lives, so he sends and causes evil. 
that would be an error also. As we survey the Bible's teaching on this topic, we're driven to conclude that God does stand behind good and evil, but that he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. He doesn't stand behind them in the same way. So while the Bible attributes good things to God, uh, you might think of James 1 where it says every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from heaven, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Good things from, come from God. Uh, but evil things, the Bible attributes always to secondary agents and their effects. Here you might think of Job's affliction. It was from Satan. Uh, God set the parameters. God never takes his hands off the wheels, but the cause of the evil was Satan himself. When Joseph suffered so much affliction at the hand of his brothers, it was the brothers that bore the guilt of that evil. They caused it. They were the secondary agents that brought it about. And yet Joseph says in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God remains good even when he accomplishes that good through evil that's brought about by secondary agents. Uh, God remains good, just like the moon is always round. You may have seen there was a, a beautiful, uh, nearly full moon last night. Um, the, the moon is always round. We don't always see it that way. Sometimes we just see a sliver of it or it's hidden completely from a, our view, but the, the moon is always round. And e even when we don't see how God's goodness is operating through the evil and the difficulty that we experience, he remains good and he accomplishes good in all that he does. God has named the events of your life. And then after uh, stating this doctrine, Solomon poses three questions that challenge us further to think about this. He's not being heartless, but seeking to help us uh, encounter suffering with wisdom. The first question that he asks is, what advantage is disputing? What advantage is disputing? You see this in verses 10 and 11. He says, it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? So Solomon has said in chapter 5, let your words be few when you come to worship. Uh, and now he says, let your words be few when you're facing adversity. Don't complain. Uh, disputing does no good. You know, some say, is, some say that, that venting is good, uh, which is true when you're stoking fires, but not when you're trying to put them out. Uh, that's why Paul says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. You know, suffering is hard, uh, but complaining doesn't make it easier. Uh, complaining doesn't make you feel better. Complaining doesn't change the circumstances. It doesn't attract the aid of others, and most importantly, it doesn't elicit God's help, but rather his displeasure. God hates complaining. Uh, it's an attack on his will and his providence. Uh, Israel um, had just come out of years of slavery, and they were in the wilderness, and even in such adverse circumstances where we might expect sympathy, God severely punishes their regular pattern of complaining. Now again, I understand this does not feel sympathetic, uh, but there is a kind of sympathy that actually doesn't help people. You know, like flattery is deceitful, um, there's a certain kind of deceitful sympathy also. And Solomon's sympathy here is simply meant to be the kind of sympathy that actually does help. It's honest. You will be helped in suffering to remember that there is no advantage to dispute with God, to complain against him. What advantage is complaining? None. Now, of course, the Psalms give us a category for lament. 
Uh, But lament is expressing our distress to God with trust, whereas complaining is expressing our distrust to God with stress. And we want to make sure that we don't complain uh, out of distrust uh, because that is of no advantage. It's actually an attack on God's will. The more words in that case, the more vanity. The second question that Solomon asks is, um, what happens, um, I'm sorry, who, who knows what is good for you? Who knows what is good for you? Look at verse 12 and he says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who knows what is good for man? You know, our vision of what's good for us uh, rarely includes pain and suffering. But here, Solomon suggests that we aren't good forecasters of what's good for us. Uh, You know, WRAL loves to make uh, blizzards out of flurries, and often that's just hype. Um, But we're we're actually decent at forecasting the weather. Limited, but but good. But we actually are not good at forecasting uh, what is good for us. Actually, it's the hard stuff that God so often uses to make us better. You see someone who's humble, who's empathetic, gentle, uh, slow to anger. You know, that's probably a person who has seen their fair share of suffering and who has experienced the benefits in their own person having come out the other side of it. Um, And then the third question that Solomon asks is, what happens after life under the sun? What happens after life under the sun? That third question is there in the end of verse 12. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This reminds us that suffering has an expiration date, um, that both pain and pleasure uh, will come to an end. Just as God has named the events of your life, so he has named the extent of your life. He alone knows how long that suffering will last. He alone knows uh, what follows it. And Solomon here kind of stops short of answering his question. Uh, God has named the events of your life, and he knows what comes next, but it's just a question for us. This is kind of how Solomon operates all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He, he is dealing squarely with life under the sun, so he kind of brings us up to the point of eternity, but never actually describes eternity or explains how it impacts our view of the present. But the question here begs us to consider that reality. Uh, that this life will come to an end, and only in eternity will all the events that God has named for our life finally make sense to us. Soren Kierkegaard said, life must be lived forward, uh, but it's only understood backwards. From the perspective of eternity, all that has been named for us in this life will make sense to us. Uh, And yet here, in life under the sun, we often find ourselves without understanding Uh, simply entrusting ourselves to the God who has named these things. So as you observe what has come to pass in your life, God has named it for you. He knows what is good for you, and he knows uh, what is next for you. And with these introductory thoughts in mind, then Solomon turns to this poem of paradox. It's a a series of better than proverbs uh, that teach us how to embrace the day of adversity rather than despise it. Uh, This is the second big section in this text, moving from uh, chapter 7, verse 1, through verse 12. And here Solomon tells us what it is that is good for us. So when 6.12 asks the question, who knows what is good for a man, there are several implied responses to that question. The first one is no one 
We, we don't know what's good for us. Uh, the second implied response is that God knows what's good for us. But then the third response to that question is really this whole poem. It gives us God's answers to what is uh, good for us. The poem is built around the, the word good or better. Uh, what is good or better for us is what this poem is teaching us. And it does it by way of paradox. Now, uh, G.K. Chesterton said that a paradox is a truth standing on its head, uh, calling for attention. And that's what these truths uh, do. They uh, set up a, a sort of paradoxical idea that calls for our attention and our meditation. There are five of these better than paradoxes in this poem. And in some ways, they, they form the backbone of the poem. It's death is better than birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth in verse 1. Mourning is better than feasting, verse 2. Sorrow is better than laughter. Rebuke is better than song. And then the end is better than the beginning. And all of this is crucial to gaining uh, wisdom and living wisely in the world. So the first paradox in verse 1 is that death is better than birth, or specifically the day of death is better than the day of birth. So he said that... um, uh, a good reputation is better than precious ointment. And for the one who has been building a good reputation, for that person, the day of death marks mission accomplished. The task has been completed. Uh, a good reputation has been secured and left behind. You know, when you think about a new high-rise building going up, uh, no one's celebrating while the foundation is dug. Uh, The ribbon-cutting ceremony, the celebration happens when the building is finished. And in some ways, that's what the day of death is for us. That idea underscores the importance, then, of thinking about the day of death uh, all throughout our lives. It helps us live well to remember death. I have a note in my prayer journal that I look at every morning that says, Remember the moment of my death and live today so that I might face that day and then Jesus uh, without regrets. We should live every day with that reality on our minds. Live with your kids today as if today would be your last day with them. Live with your spouse, your family today as if today would be your last day with them. Uh, Serve the body of Christ today. Advance the kingdom of God today. Uh, Pursue purity today. You know, do all of these things as if today were your last opportunity to do it. And, And then when death comes for us, we remember this is what we've been preparing for all along. We've been getting ready for this day. So it comes uh, perhaps as a surprise to us in its timing, but not in its reality. We should be preparing for death all throughout life with the thought that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's better. Jesus, of course, establishes for us the best example of this. He lived consciously and constantly uh, with the day of his death on his mind. It's what drove his obedience to the Father. He knew the works that God had named for him to do, and he was determined to be obedient and submissive in accomplishing all of those works. So in Luke 9, 51, when it says, when the time had come to pass for him to be received up, into heaven, referring to his day of death, he resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. Uh, He he set himself to the day of death. And then when he was on the cross, he says, it is finished, his work accomplished, the mission done. And so Jesus uh, embodies and really affirms what Ecclesiastes 7.1 is teaching us, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. 
The second paradox here is in verses 2 and 4, that mourning is better than feasting. You see that in verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? Uh, For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And then you see this same thought repeated in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The house of mourning, that's where you find the wise. The house of mourning here probably refers to a home that, or a home or a family that's uh, just lost a loved one, and so they're grieving. They are mourning, and Solomon says, when you see someone in that situation, it's better for you to be with them than to be at a family celebration or a birthday party or something like that. A a funeral is better than a party. Uh, Parties, feasting can be distraction from the realities that face us, but at a funeral, we are faced with the reality of brevity. Uh, This is the end that awaits us all, and the living will lay it to heart. Uh, funerals are good days then for us to take advantage of, so to speak, because they show us the place that we are all heading. So we don't, miss, we don't want to miss opportunities to go to funerals. When, when a member of this church dies and there's a funeral, we should be, in one sense, eager to come together to give thanks for that life as well as to remember our own death so that we might pray with the psalmist who says in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Mourning is better than feasting. And then the third paradox there in verse three is that sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now this is different than the mourning of verses two and four. The word sorrow here in verse three is not a grieving, sad kind of sorrow, uh, but it's more of an angry, frustrated sorrow in light of the vanity of life. You think of Solomon who devotes himself to finding happiness and satisfaction in uh, his, his work and, and wealth and women and so many other things and yet comes to the end of those pursuits Uh, unsatisfied, unhappy, saying it's it's vanity, it's meaningless. That's the kind of anger or frustration uh, that that is this word sorrow refers to here. And and he says that the the sadness of face that this produces, the the countenance, the the furrowed brow, the the troubled expression, uh, brings about a certain wholeness to the heart, feeling that sorrow can teach us wisdom as we observe the, the maddening, frustrating circumstances of life. Now, pessimists in the room, um, you love this verse. You feel justified here. You know, sorrow is better than laughter. Um, well, I hate to tell you this, but the rest of us don't really like being with pessimists that much, right? We like, we like positive people. We want to be around the optimist. Uh, maybe you try to be positive yourself. Um, but this verse, as much as it pains me to say it, tells us that there is an element of wisdom in pessimism. Um, And yet, the the pessimism is not the end, uh, but it's one part of the learning. It has to be paired with the optimism. You know, in a a friendship or in a marriage, the optimist and the pessimist often uh, find themselves together. Uh, Which one is better? Well, Solomon is teaching us here that both have something to gain from one another. Uh, Better than being either a pessimist or an optimist is to have a disposition large enough to embrace the paradox of life's frustrations 
without forgetting that God reigns over all things, that he has not lost control. Um, so there's the pessimist balanced by the optimist, so to speak, in this expression that sorrow is better than laughter. Because uh, notice the end of the verse. The goal is still to be made glad, made whole, made well. So when the day of adversity comes, you know, the, the pessimist may descend into a, a, a dark pit, um, the, the bog of kind of depression sucks them down into murky despair until a wise friend comes along. Um, and brings them the perspective of 6, 10 through 12. God has named the events of your life. Um, and we recall God's sovereignty and entrust ourselves to him. And we're freed then from this despair that, that pulls us down into the buoyancy of a certain kind of optimism in light of God's kind sovereignty. The sorrow of frustration then is turned into the joy of wisdom by meditating not on the adversity itself so much as we meditate on the sovereignty of God in it. The fourth paradox then is in uh, verses five through seven, which is that rebuke is better than song. He says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. For surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What a picture. Uh, a, a fool will eloquently commend, will even sing about uh, the qualities of, of foolishness. But their, their laughing is like crackling thorns under a pot. You know, thorns are useless for getting a fire going. Um, if you're trying to start a fire with small kindling thorns, you'll get some flickering flames and some smoke, but it's useless for cooking dinner. Uh, what you really need is some thick logs that will produce enough fire and then coals that you can cook a meal. Uh, so the song of fools is useless, but what you really need is the rebuke from someone who has wisdom. That's what we want. That's what is useful for us. It doesn't always feel good, uh, but it's what's useful. Children, uh, you receive discipline from your parents. No children like to be disciplined by their parents, uh, but it is useful. And adults aren't altogether different. We don't like rebuke. We don't like being disciplined. We don't like correction. But remember Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Uh, the wise rebuke or the wound of a, of a friend is, is faithful. If you're about to make a wrong turn, you want the person, the navigator sitting next to you to, to stop you, to correct you, to say, no, no don't go that way. Uh, you want them to protect you in that sense by helping you stay on the right path. To reject rebuke then is to claim perfection, as if you couldn't make any mistakes, as if you're never wrong. Even Peter was corrected uh, by, by Paul. So we should determine to receive correction with humble consideration, uh, even gratitude. It may save our lives. Um, and then the fifth, the fifth paradox here 
is that the end is better than the beginning. And you see this in verses eight through 10 where Solomon says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And so he points us to the end of a thing rather than the beginning, leading to patience along the way as we go there and preventing us from always looking back with some kind of uh, foolish nostalgia to what came before us. Uh, but all of these paradoxes uh, remind us that, that the apparently bad is actually the better. Um, that's the paradox of this poem. Uh, and, and actually, this is reflected in the teaching of Jesus, who gives us paradoxes like this. You think of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the difference uh, in the teaching of Jesus is that whereas Solomon stops at life under the sun, he's teaching us how to live wisely in this life, Jesus pulls our attention forward into a and reminds us that though we may suffer in this life and that his followers should even expect that suffering in this life, all will be made right in the world to come. The kingdom of heaven will more than repay all of the suffering of this life. And so the wisdom of Jesus rounds out the wisdom of Solomon here and teaches us to embrace the paradoxes of life. This is what living wisely looks like, which is how he um, uh, reflects on these paradoxes in verses 11 and 12, where he says that, Wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see under the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Um, it's like an inheritance. Who wouldn't want a windfall? You know, a million dollars coming your way unexpectedly as an inheritance. Because money brings a certain uh, protection from the unexpected events of life, doesn't it? Uh, you have a, an emergency fund, and so when something comes up, you're prepared for it. You're not rocked by it because you can cover that expense. Money solves the problems. It's a buffer from the hardships of life. And here, Solomon is saying that wisdom is that kind of buffer from the um, difficulties of life. It teaches us how to respond. It teaches us how to face adversity and endure it rightly and even benefit from it. So these paradoxes are, are suited to the nature of things. We all die, so we should acknowledge that and not ignore it. We all make mistakes, and so it's better to receive a rebuke than to uh, claim our, our imperfection. Um, so so these, these paradoxes then teach us wisdom uh, and, and that it takes the difficulties of life, death, sorrow, rebuke, these things we'd rather not have um, and, and describes them as the better, the thing to be preferred. That's the paradox that this poem reflects on and then leads us to the uh, conclusion in verses 13 and 14. So, this, this kind of flow of thought moves from a, a, the prologue in 6, 10 through 12 through this poem teaching us to embrace difficulty by way of paradox uh, and then leading us to the conclusion in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. 
So the conclusion here is that in in light of the fact that God has named all the events of our lives, in light of the fact that paradoxically the difficult things are often better for us than ease, uh, the conclusion is simply to consider the work of God. Uh, When God makes something crooked for you, uh, when you face the day of adversity, Solomon says simply, consider the crooked thing to be the work of God. Consider the day of adversity to be the work of God. This is how we rightly endure the day of adversity. Uh, Thomas Boston was a Scottish minister in the early 1700s, and he wrote a book uh, reflecting on verse 13 called The Crook in Your Lot, your lot being uh, your lot in life, and the crook being any uh, affliction uh, or disturbance or anything that troubles you that you might face. Uh, When he wrote The Crook in Your Lot, he had experienced a few crooks in his lot, As a young child, his father had been thrown in prison for religious reasons, and so young Thomas spent many nights on the floor in that jail, keeping his father from loneliness. As an adult, uh, Thomas and his wife lost six of their ten children, and his wife suffered throughout life with mental illness. So when he reflected on verse 13, who can make straight what God has made crooked, uh, he had experienced a few crooked things. And Thomas Boston draws three points of doctrine from this brief verse. Uh, First, whatever the crook is in your lot, it is of God's making. Whatever the crook is in your lot, it is of God's making. So he then advises us to look at the first cause of the crook in your lot, how it is God's making, how it is his doing. Well, this mirrors the verses we began with in 6, 10 through 12, affirming God's authority and control over all things, that it's of God's making. Uh, Psalm 111 then tells us, um, Psalm 111 verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. All of God's works are great. All of God's works should be studied. All of God's works should be delighted in. These are his works, even the difficult things. The second doctrine that Boston draws from verse 13 is that what God sees fit to mar, we will not be able to mend. What God sees fit to mar, we will not be able to mend. So think about this for a moment. If you're you're single and that feels like an affliction to you because you want to be married, um, how do you apply that idea? You know, what he mars, we will not be able to mend. You, well, of course, you, you can pray uh, that God would provide a spouse, and you may legitimately engage in seeking a spouse. Or, or, if, or if you've received news of some sickness that you have, uh, of course, you can pray that God would heal you. We ought to pray for that, and we may engage in seeking some remedy for that sickness. And yet, Um, we all the while resign ourselves to the will of God. We submit ourselves to what he may have for us. This is a hard mixture to groan under affliction and even to seek to get out from under affliction by any lawful and godly means, uh, and yet the whole while to be resigned to God's good will, to be content in him. This is a great mystery, Uh, But this is what grace actually teaches us. You might remember how Paul in Philippians 4.11 says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Did you hear that? He said, I've learned the secret uh, for facing adversity through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, what God calls us to, he strengthens us for. That's the secret of facing adversity. So rather than resisting his will, we should aim our efforts at drawing strength from Christ for contentment. Uh, what God sees fit tomorrow, we will not be able to mend. And then uh, the third doctrine that Boston draws from verse 13 is that uh, the, the consideration of the crook in our law as God's making, considering it as his doing, uh, is actually the proper means to bring one to a Christian deportment under it. How, does, how, how do we behave as a Christian in the midst of adversity? He says, well, the means to behaving rightly is to consider uh, it to be of God's making. In adversity, we often become myopic. We can't see any further than the adversity itself. We think about it constantly. How did it feel yesterday? How might it feel tomorrow? Uh, when might it come to an end? Why aren't others helping me more in this adversity? Um, we review the adversity from every possible angle, but Solomon teaches us here that in the day of adversity, we should meditate not so much on the adversity itself as we do on the sovereignty of God in it, which then would lead us to ask, if, if, God, has, if God has made it crooked, if this is of God's making, how then should I respond in the midst of this adversity? How does he want me to respond? What does he want me to learn? How can I be faithful to him in the midst of this? You know, these are the thoughts that should be predominant in our minds as we face adversity. Then in verse 14, you hear this conclusion kind of restated, consider the work of God. So you see verse 14 says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made both days, the day of prosperity that Solomon was talking about in chapters five and six, as well as the day of adversity. But that kind of raises the question, why would God make the day of adversity? Well, obviously, in the Garden of Eden, there were no days of adversity. And in God's eternal paradise, there will be no days of adversity. Uh, but as for life under the sun, days of adversity are the defining feature. Life is hard and painful. And so the question kind of backs up a bit to why would God create a world, even if it was perfect in the beginning, in which adversity would come? If God knew there would be so much pain and suffering and injustice in the world, why would he create to begin with? And the answer to that question is, is quite simply that the glory of the end outweighs the suffering of the present. The glory of the end will outweigh the suffering of the present. Now, here's a long sentence, if you can hang with me, from Robert Raymond. He's a theologian who died about uh, 10 years ago. But he said, the ultimate end which God decreed he regarded as great enough and glorious enough that it justified to himself both the divine plan itself and the ordained incidental evil arising along the foreordained path to his plan's great and glorious end. The end, in other words, will be so magnificent, so glorious, 
that God is justified even in creating a path where evil arises along the way. The glory of the end will outweigh the suffering of the present. This is what Paul teaches in Romans 8, 18, when he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Or again, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he puts it this way. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The glory of the end outweighs the suffering of the present. And God has made the day of adversity um, in in one sense as a preparation for, um, to be far outweighed by uh, that eternal day of prosperity. So when Ecclesiastes says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? In one sense, it sounds like a cynical old man. Uh, It sounds like a stoic resignation. No one can undo what God has made crooked. But there is another answer to that question, which is that God himself can make straight uh, what is crooked and will make straight all that has been crooked. This is what the kingdom of heaven is all about, making crooked straight things. As you read through the stories of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, making straight the crooked is what he does. Uh, He instantly heals the leper. He touches Peter's mother-in-law and the fever immediately leaves her. He removes the demons from those who are possessed. He heals the uh, paralytic and straightens his crooked legs and he heals the woman from the issue of blood. He touches her and says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you whole. This is what Jesus constantly does. He's making straight the crooked, making whole what's broken, and this is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And best of all, Jesus goes to the cross and removes God's wrath against our sin. He mends what we have marred. He restores what we have ruined, our relationship with God. And so we we look to Jesus and remember that um, all will be made right in the end. For those who attach themselves to Christ by faith, like those sick people in the Gospel of Matthew, there, there is healing, there is restoration, and there is the hope of eternal wholeness. Listen, we, we don't get adversity right. We don't get our response to adversity right. Um, we see the wisdom of Solomon here on the one hand, and then we kind of review our own response to suffering on the other, and we see that we constantly um, fail in that regard. We don't walk out all these things as we should. We would love to be that shining and ex- inspiring example of how to pass through suffering, and yet so often we fall flat on our face in complaint, in frustration, in questioning God. Um, but Jesus faced all the adversity that the Father had planned for him without complaint, in perfect humility and submission to the Father. And so when we fail, we simply point to Jesus, say, Father, accept us because of his righteousness, uh, because of how he endured adverse- adversity. Will you accept me? We, we always go to him for that forgiveness. So we, we set our sights on honoring God in the midst of adversity, and yet we always take recourse to the kindness of God in Jesus for forgiveness when we fail. This is the hope that we have then in the day of adversity, that we have resources here in Christ uh, for strength, to walk with contentment in the face of adversity, and yet we find uh, forgiveness in him as well for when we fail in that regard. So as we conclude then, 
let's spend a a moment in silent prayer asking for God's spirit uh, to help us in the adversity that we are facing, that we will face, that we might honor him, and to give thanks for Christ who faced adversity perfectly, that we might be accepted by the Father even when we fail.